Let me take just a moment and say how thankful that we are to be able to be back with you tonight. Appreciate the thoughts and the considerations that you extended to us while we were at the homecoming at Hurricane this morning. Everything went very well, went very, very delightfully, in fact. Very, very good crowd that was present, and they seemed to enjoy very much the opportunity to gather in that homecoming. But certainly we missed our church family here and are delighted to be back with you. I'd like to extend a word of thanks to the elders for allowing us to go to that, as well as to Jonathan for taking care of all the activities and the things of the Bible study and the lesson this morning. I suppose I should also say that the, due to some allergies, um, the consideration of my voice has worsened throughout the course of this day, but I believe it's going to be okay for tonight. I'm just going to sound unusual, but perhaps that's not too strange a thing for me, I guess, anyway. The challenge to trust God is the title I've given to tonight's lesson, taken from Second Chronicles, the 20th chapter. I hope that you'll be turning to that chapter as we look at a few of the things found therein. I believe it's a very memorable story. In fact, it's a very exciting particular set of events that unfolded then. But I believe in it are things that can help us very directly and very powerfully and with great application as you and I seek also to be those who would trust God in the way that He would want us to trust Him. Perhaps in light of that, isn't it fair to say that these opening comments perhaps are not that extreme at this point other than to say, I suppose we're going to encounter a scene tonight in the life of Jehoshaphat, one that maybe isn't as familiar as it would be in compared to many others in the Bible, but nonetheless, it's recorded for our benefit. It's recorded for a blessing for you and me. And so we will, in fact, look at a number of the features of that chapter 2 Chronicles, the 20th chapter. This following slide is one that sets before us a very simple word. It's a word that in fact continues throughout all the times we use it to nonetheless heighten in us an understanding of just how much it demands. Have you ever noticed that? There are circumstances that we encourage trust in others and in fact we develop it. Maybe you have such a deep-seated trust in your parents Maybe a deep-seated trust in your spouse, your children. Maybe a particular neighbor or very, very close friend. But on the other hand, we warn our children, don't you trust strangers? Isn't it interesting? There are some elements of trust that we develop and encourage. In fact, we even admonish it. There are others that, in fact, we warn people against it. This particular slide sets before us a definition. What does this word trust mean? I've borrowed a definition out of one of our dictionaries at the house. According to the Merriam-Webster Collegiate Dictionary, 11th edition, the word trust is defined like this. Assured reliance on the character, ability, strength, or truth of someone or something. I suspect all of us, in a way, have a definition like that in mind. Although trust might be difficult to put into words, we kind of know what it means a reliance upon someone or something, an absolute confidence in that which they claim or that which they are. Isn't it true? The Bible encourages you and me to have the absolute and surest of confidences in the God of heaven. Tonight, let's study Second Chronicles 20. Let's, in fact, wrestle with one of the features that that demands, and let's appreciate the nature of what unfolds before us. As you look at this slide here, though you and I give appreciation 
to the greatness of God. And it's true, we've never seen him with our unaided eye. Nonetheless, Jesus said in John 14, 9, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He told that directly to those apostles. As you and I then use the eye of faith to look at the sacredness and the presentation of the Word of God, isn't it true that you and I can learn something about this visiting of God and the appreciation of what's involved as we seek to trust Him? At the bottom of that slide, we're now going to turn back to that scene in 2 Chronicles 20. With that in mind, let's do it in the following way. First, rather than read the fullness of that rather lengthy chapter, let me try to highlight some of the historical ideas, and then we will read selected verses. Jehoshaphat at this time was the fourth king of Judah. By this point, the kingdom had already been split into a northern kingdom of Israel, a southern kingdom of Judah. At this point, the fourth king, Jehoshaphat, was already reigning over the, on the throne of Judah. As he did so, you might take note, we are about the year 850 B.C. Fascinatingly enough, we begin to appreciate the following, and please note it with care. Although it's true that many of the kings of Israel and Judah were wicked men, Jehoshaphat is described in a very positive way. I've borrowed the words of 2 Chronicles 17, 4. This man, Jehoshaphat, sought the Lord God. He directed his heart after the things that would be pleasing to God. Despite the evil of some of the other kings, and despite even the surrounding nature of the society, we find in Jehoshaphat a man who had an interest in seeking God. May I submit to you that wouldn't be a bad idea to at least keep in our hearts even today. If all the world and yet in vast numbers were to decide to pursue the things of the devil, you and I with assurance, with trust, and with confidence should strive to seek the Lord. Let's go even further than that. Jehoshaphat and that southern kingdom found itself in an exceedingly trying time. Let me fill in some details. There were a number of enemy nations. I have simply stated it like this. The Ammonites, the Moabites, the Edomites, they joined in their forces. They, in fact, formed an alliance and came against Jehoshaphat and the southern kingdom of Judah. Let me pause there and help us appreciate some of that. The southern kingdom of Judah was not a large empire. May we always understand that it was only the fullness of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. That's all it was. That was not a large territory. That was not a large army. And yet here were enemy nations. The Ammonites themselves were far larger by themselves than was Judah. And yet they joined forces with the Edomites as well as the Moabites, and they all came against Judah. How do you suppose you would react? How do you suppose you and I would find ourselves if that large a multitude were coming against us? May I invite you to notice at this point, verse number 2 of Second Chronicles 20. It says, There came again, I'm sorry, Then there came some that told Jehoshaphat, saying, There cometh a great multitude, against thee from beyond the sea. That's all we need to read, at least for now. This multitude that was, in fact, in the distance, coming against this people of Judah, it says it was a great multitude. 
It wasn't a small number. So great was it that in the lesson text a few moments ago, Brother Colonel read verse number 12. Could I invite you to notice again the language that's presented? O our God, wilt thou not judge them? For we have no might against this great company that cometh against us. Jehoshaphat was under the impression he felt that of the matter available to him, we are powerless against them. We have no might against that large company. Far larger were its armies. Far larger were their military establishments. Far larger were their military potential and capabilities. We, he said, do not stand a chance. The verse goes on to say this. Neither know we what to do, but our eyes are upon thee. Jehoshaphat, speaking for his people, speaking for his military generals, speaking for those who had the knowledge and expertise in that area, he frankly admitted, we do not know what to do. Could we pause a moment and say, have you ever found yourself in life in a circumstance in which you didn't know what to do? It was confusing. It was perplexing. It was challenging to say the least. That's where Jehoshaphat found himself. That's where the people found themselves. They were at a point, if you and I could say it so, at which they did not know which way to turn. I have put all of that on the slide like this. Judah considered that they had no might against this large enemy. As you and I come to the bottom of that slide and turn to the next, at this point could we ask this question? Given that Jehoshaphat did not know what to do, and given that the people again had nothing to offer, what did they do? Obviously, we have now passed through several centuries of time. What did they do? At this point, look at verse 4. I'll start reading in verse 3. But if you like to make notes in your Bible, I would invite you to look with care at verses 3 and 4. And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah gathered themselves together to ask help of the Lord. Even out of all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. And so it is at the bottom of that slide. Jehoshaphat, it seems without delay, pronounced a fast or proclaimed one throughout the nation. And not only that, he not only himself sought to seek the Lord, he encouraged that in the lives and in the mind of others, and in so doing, notice the prayer. Beginning in verse number 5, we have a record of a beautiful prayer that Jehoshaphat prayed. Now remember, a moment ago we read that he didn't know where to turn. I believe we see an appreciation of what his decision has been. He sought the Lord, you see. He looked for help. He looked for aid. He looked for assistance in this marvelous and almighty Yahweh of heaven. Surely in light of that, let's go further in our lesson tonight, making additional applications to your life and to mine. But along the way, let's make our opening lesson. We'll pause time and again throughout this lesson, and we will strive to make applications to our heart and to our life. Our opening lesson is this one. I asked this question as a lead-in a moment ago, but it's time to develop it again and to develop it a little more thoroughly. What about dealing with the troubles of life? 
Have you ever had any? Do you know anyone that has? To ask that question is to answer it, isn't it? Now keep in mind, Jehoshaphat was faced with some trouble. Here was a gentleman, the king of the nation, and he was responsible for the well-being of them in that he was responsible for making the proper choices, the proper leadership. The enemy nations were on the horizon. What am I to do? My military generals are no help. The other activities of the nation are of no benefit on this occasion. Dealing with life's problems. You and I each have faced them. And we no doubt will many times again. Here you'll notice what he did. We have the assurance that even though we're Christians, even though we are individuals who have given our lives over to the fullness of trust and believing in God, that does not remove from us the problems of life. The difficulties that surround this flesh, you see, it seems, are ongoing and they're constant. I know that we're each thankful for those plateaus of life when it seems that all is well, but we each know on the horizon there still awaits major challenges, decisions, hardships, maybe even severe disappointments. Look at what happened to Jehoshaphat. I'm sure that when he took the throne four years earlier, he had no idea that this was going to happen. I'm sure he didn't wish it to happen, and yet here it was. Those problems that you and I face bring us to verses like these. Think about verses that remind us of the ever-present challenge and troubles that come our way. Even in the midst of the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus said, Let not your heart be troubled. He knew those apostles were about to face some incredibly great challenges. But why is that? They were faithful, weren't they? They were the very hand-picked chosen ones that to follow the Master. And He knew they were going to be challenged. So great were those challenges. Wouldn't you agree that Jesus even told them they would be under the threat of death itself, John 16, 2. He even promised them that individuals were going to think they were doing God's service when they tried to put them to death. The Lord told them that. He still tells you and me that. In 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, Yea, and all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Isn't it true? Those problems will come to us in like manner that they have come to the gods faithful of all ages. I'm reminded, aren't you, about the Apostle Paul? Here was one who admittedly had been an opponent of Christianity. He had not been a believer in Jesus. And yet on that road to Damascus, his life was forever changed. He talked with the Lord Jesus Christ. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me, Jesus asked? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. We read that very statement in Acts 9, verses 3 and following. Surely in light of that very idea, we now appreciate this very one who he, Jesus called a chosen messenger. Read Acts 9, verses 17 and following. He was an individual who himself, who himself provided a listing like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Beginning in verse 23, he said, I've been beaten, I've suffered shipwreck." I've been in perils in the sea, perils in the city, perils in my countrymen, perils in strangers. Anywhere and always, I've been under constant threat and duress. Paul knew troubles, didn't he? 
And yet, what did Paul do? What did Jehoshaphat do? What should you and I do? You'll notice in light of that, we often consider it a noble thing, do we not? To try to handle it myself. After all, I am an independent person. I can think, I can act, I can make choices. On that slide, I wrote it like this. I suppose it is so tempting for us to let God be our last resort. When quite frankly, He should be the first line of defense. Aren't you impressed with what Jehoshaphat did? Here was the king. Wouldn't it be something to live in a nation and watch your leader vow an humble petition and prayer before the God of heaven and beseech His aid and His counsel and His wisdom? We currently don't live in a nation like that. I pray someday we will. We have in days gone by. Here you'll notice Jehoshaphat at this moment. He gathered the people together and in front of them, he led a remarkable prayer, petitioning God for assistance, for help, for guidance. No wonder in light of those things, you and I should appreciate the individual blessing along that line for us. I would ask you to notice the closing verse of Psalm 55, written perhaps as a passage to help you and me, even in individual matters, as we face the greatness of these things around us. Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and He shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. May I ask, do you and I believe that? Do we believe it? Do we trust that statement, that promise of Holy Scripture? It said, I shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. And amazingly enough, that's quoted at least in large measure in 1 Peter chapter 5. May I invite you to note verse 7 of that chapter. Casting all your burdens upon him, for he careth for you. Do you and I believe this? Do we believe that God cares for us? I know that as we study about Jehoshaphat, and we give appreciation to those things of a day's long since gone by. It is true that we see some more examples at the bottom. I would call to your attention none other than Peter. Peter, of course, was a notable apostle. In Matthew chapter 14, he did something very unique. I'm sure you've already raced to that scene, though, in your mind. Peter and the others, the other apostles, I should say, they were aboard a ship, and the Lord came walking on the water. Peter jumped out of that boat. For a little while, Peter walked on water. How did he do that? For a little while, he walked on water. Now, we all remember he began to sing when he looked at the waves that were boisterous and loud round about him. But may we never forget that before he sank, he walked on water. Here was one surrounded by the difficulties and the rather fierce waves, and yet he was aloof to all of that when his eyes were focused on Jesus. Is it not true that Jehoshaphat sets before us the reality there are going to be problems in life? Where should we put our focus? How should we deal with it? As our lesson goes on, we're going to develop a few more things, but as we come to the bottom of that slide, it prepares us for the next. Because after all, I'm sure you're as much as I am in a position of wondering what happened to the people. 
After Jehoshaphat prayed, what happened to the enemy nations when they came? Let's study about that. It brings us to the next section of the lesson. After Jehoshaphat's prayer, and after the considerations in which he called on the help and assurance of God, let's journey a little bit more forward in the chapter before us. Starting at the top, we find that almost immediately the Spirit of God came upon one of the people gathered at the very hearing of Jehoshaphat. It was a young man named Jehaziel. The Spirit of God overwhelmed him and he began to speak. I would ask you to notice what he said. I'm going to read in beginning in verse number 15. Then he said, Hearken ye all Judah and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem and the king Jehoshaphat. Thus saith the Lord, Unto you be not afraid nor dismayed by reason of this great multitude. For the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go ye down against them. Behold, they come up by the cliff of Ziz, and ye shall find them by the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel. Ye shall not need to fight in this battle. Set yourselves, stand ye still, and see the salvation of the Lord. O Judah and Jerusalem, fear not, nor be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord will be with you. The language is very telling, isn't it? As this spirit came upon Jehaziel and he himself affirmed what was to happen, God gave him the battle plan. Tomorrow the enemy's coming. God didn't at that moment just immediately whisk away all the troubles and problems. They were still there. Those problems in our life are still going to remain more than likely even after we petition God for help. But note what comes next. God gave him the battle plan. This is how you attack. This is what you do in order to be successful. Isn't that what the Bible's all about? He tells us what to do and how to do it in order that we too might be successful in that greatest of all battles. I'm sure you noticed it with me. It said the battle is the Lord's. It's not yours, Jehoshaphat. And furthermore, in verse number 17, it says, You won't even need to fight. Have you ever wondered what the facial expression of Jehoshaphat probably was? When the Spirit was at that moment telling him, The enemy is coming, and tomorrow you're going to engage them in battle, but you won't even have to fight. I can't help but believe there was an incredible sense of relief that came on him, but I'm sure there was also a degree of amazement. How can this be? And yet, by the assurance of God, look at, with me at how Jehoshaphat re reacted. Verse number 18. And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground. And all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. Did you notice? They didn't question him in the slightest. Even though they may have wondered, they did not ask Jehaziel how this was to be. They trusted God. I believe we're learning some powerful lessons about trust and what it involves. It is a deep-seated reliance on that which God says. Even if we don't always see immediately how He'll bring it to about. The confidence leads us to some remaining statements on that slide. They were told to stand still. Verse 17, and to appreciate the salvation of the Lord. This very day, isn't it true that when you and I face these 
very challenging situations that we often have, find ourselves in. Enemies circling us. Those who oppose us and often don't appreciate the slightest what we believe and do. Nonetheless, we know that there is a tremendous trust we can have in one whose battle it really is and one who will provide us with the necessary accompaniment to approach it in the way that's dutiful, correct, and right. As we come to that particular point on the slide, why don't we look at another lesson? Let's pause and consider something else. I promised you from time to time we'd pause on an oasis of discussion and look at yet another lesson. Here's another one. Aren't you thankful and aren't we excited about the reality of a God who hears the petitions of His children? That's what happened here. Jehoshaphat had prayed. He had led the people in a proper response to the conundrum in which they found themselves, and God answered almost immediately. Aren't you thankful that you can go to a private place, just as Jesus described in Matthew chapter 6, into your closet if you please, and there pour your heart out to a God who loves you, and a God who has promised He will not only hear, but He'll answer now, let's be quick to say, He doesn't always answer the way we ask. Because in wisdom, we always want to pray, Thy will be done and not ours. Jesus gave us that example, didn't He, in Matthew 26, 39 and following. There, Jesus, even in the throne, the throes of Gethsemane, He prayed, Father, not as I will, but as Thou wilt. It's still true, isn't it? Sometimes the best thing God can do is to say no. We pray because we think it's in our best interest, but God says no, that's not in your best interest. Some time may pass and then we admit He was right. Maybe a year passes, two years, five years, and then in hindsight we're able to appreciate that, oh, how we're glad God did not answer the prayer the way we ask it. I have now reached so long into my life in terms of number of years, and I can assure you that at least for me, many times I'm thankful that God did not answer the prayers the way I asked them. Many of us no doubt feel the same. Look again at what happened here. On this occasion, the God of heaven answered by providing a message of consolation and a word of guidance to both Jehoshaphat and the people. The answer of a loving God. Aren't you excited, as I mentioned before, about that attribute of God? I'm reminded of the words of 1 Peter 3.12, aren't you? It says, His ears are over the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayer. Do you and I trust that? Do we believe it? It's a quotation from Psalm 34. It was true in the days of the Old Testament. It remains true today. All spiritual blessings are in Jesus. Ephesians 1 verse 3. And because of that nature, we have access to the Heavenly Father. We each know that God hasn't promised free access to all people to Him. He has promised it to His children. You and I then have every right to pray boldly, to pray with confidence, to pray with assurance, and didn't James remind us in James chapter 1, verses 5 and following, if any man lack that assurance, 
Ask God who giveth to all men liberally. Perhaps it's wise for us to comment. Then that from these days of Jehoshaphat, we learn that trusting in God requires that we step out to the point of we allow Him to take control of what He has promised to do. We in faith simply must do what He says. Surely that leads us to note this. As the battle came close, what would you have done if you were Jehoshaphat? Would you have called your military generals and say, you need to at least be ready just in case? You will find no record of that anywhere in 2 Chronicles 20. Apparently Jehoshaphat completely trusted what God said. God said the battle is mine, not yours. Jehoshaphat believed it. If you and I then have a faith like Jehoshaphat, we too will act on the fullness of what this Bible says, fully believing it and simply trusting that God will take care of all His promises. He'll take care of His side of that bargain. One last thing on that slide would be a number of examples that you and I find, not the least of which might well be that overwhelming scene in Acts 16. You remember that there was a gentleman there who found himself in a very dire set of straits. Paul and Silas. Here they were preaching in Philippi and they had been cast into prison simply because that those of the area were not pleased with that which they said. At midnight, Paul and Silas, among all things, they weren't sleeping. They weren't crying and making petition. It says they were singing and praying. They prayed to God, no doubt, for His guidance to be with that situation, to allow the gospel to, in fact, have free course in Philippi. Do you notice that they trusted? Their trust was so full and complete that they were given to singing and praying at that hour of the night, though they themselves were in stocks. Maybe in light of those things, our journey needs to continue. For now, might we ask, what did happen when the morrow came? Jehoshaphat had prayed to God. He had given answer, that is, God did. But what happened on the morrow? Let's turn the slide and let's study yet another thing. As we come to ask what happened on the morrow, I would ask you to appreciate one interesting feature that to me I find very overwhelming. What did Jehoshaphat do when the morrow came? As the time for the enemy was getting close, as the moment of engagement was at hand, what did Jehoshaphat do? Let me point out one of the verses, if I might. Verse number 20, verses, verses 20 and 21 read like this. And they rose early in the morning and went forth into the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went forth, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God. So shall you be established. Believe his prophets, so shall you prosper. And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed singers unto the Lord, and that, and that should praise the beauty of holiness as they went out before the army, and to say, Praise the Lord, for his mercy endureth forever. Now picture it. These enemies were coming. The Moabites, the Ammonites... 
these individuals that were the Edomites as well, and as they were on the horizon, Jehoshaphat did prepare a group to proceed to meet them. Who was leading it? It wasn't the military generals. It wasn't the swordmen. It wasn't the horsemen. Did you notice who it was? Singers. Trained singers were leading the group. How confident do you suppose Jehoshaphat was? Obviously, he was very confident that there was no fighting going to take place. The people he put in front of the army were the singers. Isn't that trust? Here was a man who acted in trust, and he allowed the actions of his life to manifest that trust. May you and I act as wisely. It's one thing on a Sunday morning to say, I trust God. But what about on Monday? Do we allow our life's actions to manifest that trust by wholeheartedly doing that which God says, even when others oppose it, even when others, in fact, would question it and insult it? He put the singers in front of the army. You'll notice as verse number 21 ends, those singers were proclaiming praise unto God. May I submit to you, everything turned that, that day wonderfully for Judah. The power of God, in fact, confounded the enemy. The Moabites, the Ammonites, the Edomites, they all fought against each other. And in fact, Israel, just as God promised, never even had to engage in the battle. The victory belonged to God. May I submit to you, the victory still belongs to God. Under the pages of the New Testament, we are assured that Jesus has already defeated the devil. All we need to do is make sure we're on Jesus' side. It's true that there are great principalities and powers and rulers in darkness. We read that in Ephesians 6 verse 12. But Jesus said, a stronger than the strong man is here. He said that referring to himself. Now the devil's the strong man, no doubt about that. But Jesus said, a stronger than he is here. If you and I will clasp the hand of the master, walk faithfully following his captainship, we are assured of victory because the victory is his. No wonder we read in 2, Chronicle, or 2 Corinthians 2.14 about the victory. They who follow Jesus are always led in triumph in Christ. May I submit to you, those are some thoughts that we'll use to close our lesson this Sunday evening. Total trust. Although many of the kings of ancient Israel were pretty sorry rascals, evil, ungodly men, I believe we'd have to be impressed on this occasion with Jehoshaphat. A king admitting that he didn't know where to turn except to God, and he led his nation, and God provided him victory. God will provide you victory and me too if we will follow him, trust him. And so it is... In Proverbs 3, verse 5, we read these words, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. Acknowledge Him, and He shall guide thy paths. May you and I in wisdom not only acknowledge Him, but may we trust Him. Following even when the world would say it's foolish, even when maybe our judgment would say that isn't the wisest course of action, but that doesn't matter. The victory belongs to the Lord. When we are faced with those moments of persecution, when maybe it's a very strenuous situation, someone is ready to insult and revile us because we won't do what they say we should. 
that's when we like Jehoshaphat need to perhaps have a moment of reflection. Remember what he said? We're powerless without God. He admitted that. And when you and I will place our hand and our trust in Him, we are assured that all will work out for our blessing and benefit. In Romans 8, verse number 18, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Paul was a man of confidence, a man of trust, and he admonished the Romans to feel the same. He would admonish you and me in the very same way. As we come to the close of this lesson, may I ask each of us, myself included, are we trusting God? Not just Sundays and Wednesdays, admittedly. Are we trusting Him? Is this Word a vital and vibrant part of all that we do? Because this Word is always going to be opposed by culture. James 4 verse 4. Tonight, if there's someone in the audience and your life is not as it ought to be, you really don't trust God. Oh, maybe you've made pretense to that. You have made claim to it. But you know that deep in your heart that simply isn't the case. Tonight, we would be delighted to approach God in prayer. If you are simply a, a wayward child of God, why not come back to your first love? You need to trust Him, you know. You need to believe in Him, follow Him wholly, obey Him thoroughly, and trust Him. And that trust, just like in the days of Jehoshaphat, will emanate to a great blessing for you. Tonight, if we could be of assistance to you, or as one who is an alien sinner, never known the sweetness of resting a life on the foundation that's called a rock in Matthew 7, 24. The foolish man built on the sand, but it was the wise man that built on the rock. That rock, again, was knowing God's commandments and doing them. Tonight, if we can, in fact be those to assist you in your initial obedience to the gospel, we'd be honored and delighted to help you. Believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess His name as the Son of God and be baptized. And if we can help you in that way, you can leave this building tonight in a transformed way, a servant of the Master, a member of the church, sins forgiven in baptism. If we can help you tonight... This song of encouragement has been chosen. Why don't you come while together we stand and while we sing?